Are you ready to get peculiar? Peculiar? Want to try it? No. Are you ready to get peculiar? Welcome to Okashina Podcast Enemy with Friends. I am Sabrina Ray. With me is Don Muntz. <laughs> Your honey-tongued interlocutor, Don Munson. Don Muntz, wow. what is that? Have you thought about that pretty deeply? No. Your honey-tongued interlocutor? Yes. Is that a, is that a villain? Is that You're, a is that a boss you are enemy totally in just demons jealous. souls? You are absolutely jealous that I just pulled that one right out. I am jealous. I am. Um, I usually go off the cuff and come up with something really bad, <laughs> but that was not bad. I will give you props for that, Munson. How are you tonight? Um, you know, we live in strange times, Sabrina. So I am holding it together. How is it affecting you right now, though? Define it. <laughs> let's not even talk about that. All right, let's let's dive more into the fantasy worlds of of Azoken. Yes, I mean we always do banter before the show starts. Banter, banter, banter. Banter, banter. Yes, um, I want to tell you something that's really cool, but it's this is gonna this is gonna be about t- two weeks after Halloween, so I'm really missing the window here. <laughs> But I found, Maya and I were out for a walk on an animal trail near our house, and we found a skeleton bone. It was like a an arm with like a bit of the hand and like a finger attached. I, you really got me there because I was trying to think of what kind of bones do not come from skeletons, therefore would not be a skeleton bone. I uh, love the sound of the word skeleton bone. It's not about, <laughs> it's not necessarily about that making any sense as a word combination. Oh, I'm so glad that it's not about that. <laughs> I'm like a dog. Like I have vo- the vocabulary of a dog. Like I'm Bark, putting my hair woof, up right barf, now. Like they're um, cocker spaniel ears. ears. Yeah, that's that's it's that's awkward. Listen, buddy, I found a skeleton bone, and you found the arm of a skeleton. Was it was there... it was it was pretty decayed, so So I just wanna be clear, is this was this a prop or was this actually the bone from a We're human skeleton? I'm fairly certain it was a bone from an a, from an animal that was once alive. Ah, there we go. I and I'm glad you but clarified it animal. may have it may have been a human animal. We don't know. Because we're not bone experts. I feel like if it was a human you probably should have done something that you didn't do. I'm just going to go out on I a, took a picture. Go out on a limb here. Oh. I took photo. Oh, God. Did you really make that joke? <laughs> yeah, I really did. And it the took other, me that long for it to sink in. The other day I was I was doing a video on making penny on on making royal milk tea, which is fabulous by the way. Royal milk milk tea is the best way to have tea. It was ever invented. It's also extremely fattening and, and it's too much. It's too much milk and it's too much sugar. So I can't really tell if you are telling us I, go I out love and it. have royal milk I tea love it. or Just avoid royal milk tea. Have it like twice. <laughs> Get it so, out of your system. It's really easy to make. What you do is you just take a skeleton bone and you put it in a pot. With a lot of milk and sugar. A lot of milk and sugar. Buddy, what have you been doing this week? What have you been watching? What have you been up to? Um, honestly, I am... <laughs> apropos of our prior discussion on Inuyasha, I am trying to finish that series. Um, oh, good, good. It's pretty bad, um, all things considered. Like, it does a tremendous amount of telling, not showing. Uh, and it constantly repeats themes... It's lazy with its artwork, and it delights in reminding its audience of things that, by all rights, they should know by then. Um, Are the kids bored? Are you watching it with them? No, I'm not watching it with them. I don't have... I mean, the, the, the window in which I can watch 
This is like I'll just put this on in the background when I'm doing other things and such because it's not as if you need to pay close attention. Um, and there are whole episodes like whenever Kagome returns to the <laughs> current time period, where <laughs> once that happens, you can pretty much fast forward through the episode because there will be no plot development. I'm just anxious to see uh, the the final villain conquered and how they're planning on doing that. I, I realize I could probably skip ahead, but yeah, I've been watching a bunch of that. Uh, I've actually been watching The Boys. Oh yeah, we talked about that very briefly, but now you have caught up with your wife and you're watching the new season? I Well, I made her get caught up. She was the one who was behind. And we are six episodes into the second season. We're watching with somebody else and we're planning on having a uh, some sort of um, dinner celebration with the, the final episode. I don't want to spoil anything. Good. But you're at that episode where his, his uh, gills start talking in the voice of Patton Oswalt now. No, that you're talking season one. I'm talking season two. That's in season two. You're right. That isn't season two, but it's season that's near the beginning of season two. Yeah, it's that's not, what I'm saying. I'm saying like that was like oh that has memorable. already passed. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's memorable. Yes, <laughs> that, that that whole story arc is crazy and hilarious. Did um, you get to the whale yet? Oh yes. Oh, that's also very great. Um, I heard that was something that they wanted to do in season one, but they didn't have either the budget or the balls to do. They really don't pull any punches in this particular season. They they go to some pretty dark places. Yeah, yeah. How about you? What are, what's you? What's been on your palate? Well, if you're asking what's been on my palate, bone ligaments do. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> this finding this wayward arm in the forest has really changed your whole outlook here when life throws you lemons you make lemonade when life throws you bones you make gluten Um, i probably had a whole bunch of stuff i wanted to talk about but i was just on a different podcast and i talked about all of it so i can tell you this i'm watching i just finished watching emily in paris and i love it it's cringy it's cringy but the fashion is de- the fashion is delectable. The men are hunky, and she's just like the center of attention, and you live vicariously through her. And she's in France, and like I'm stuck in New Jersey. I want to go to France so bad because <laughs> of this show. Except I want to go to Emily's France, where everybody is mean <laughs> or sexy. <laughs> or mean or sexy. Those are the two options. And they all smoke. And I hate smoking, but I, I don't think Emily can smell their smoke. It's French. The she food is also smoke. good. The food looks great. Um, actually, it doesn't look great because they never show it. Well, because but, people aren't eating because everyone's wearing this hot couture. Yeah, and they're all smoking, so they can't taste anything. <laughs> I mean, I have never understood smoking. I'll tell you that. We've talked too long about this, though. We're here to talk about Azo Ken. This is episode five and six, I believe. It deals with a big robot. A big-ass robot. The dream of every anime fan from 1970 to 1990. That's a very specific window. It kind of went away after that. Um, I I firmly object, and I'm confident we can find... No, I think it's still there. I'm just saying, like, the heyday of the giant robot anime, including Giant Robo, (laughs) which is literally the name Giant Robot without the T... Uh, (laughs) i am confident there are plenty of giant robot i mean even uh gosh what i can't believe my brain is just a hunk of junk your brain cheese but yes exactly but what what was that show i mean you absolutely love this show what it's the anime with all the robots that are falling from the heavens and they have the robot pilots and... Oh, well, um, it's raining robots. No, not that one. Try again. Oh, oh okay. Um, uh, you did holy, a podcast on it. You're you're just tormenting holy me Holy robots. Stop tormenting me. We both holy know. Holy robot guys. You holy know, smokes. You holy know what smokes I'm talking about. Holy smokes the robot guys. Holy smokes get You're just going to have to cut all this filler now. Oh, get in the robot Shinji. Oh, my gosh. You're breaking my heart. Neon Genesis having. Thank you. Yes, that was not a 1990s vehicle. Not a 90s vehicle. It wasn't in the 90s at all? I beg to differ. I think it was in 96. 
I said 90s. I didn't say it ended at 1990. Oh, you looking it up? You of doubt course. the podcast of haver? Of course. I'm the foremost expert on saying things. That 95 to 96. Um, however, uh, the related goods selling you. over 150 billion yen by 2007. And the pachinko machines selling 700 billion yen by 2015. What is this weird flex you're doing about pachinko machines? I I am a Wikipedia vomiter. I will say that Evangelion has remained relevant and popular. But that's different than sort of having its heyday. Like... It, there was a boom when Evangelion did Giant Robots, and there are several imitators, some of which came out later. But I would say that um, the sort of Gundam, like Empire, was strongest in the 90s and before. I, uh, perhaps. Maybe uh, some kids growing say... up today were like, oh, I loved Gundam. <laughs> I'm just saying, I feel that you're your nostalgia or your faux nostalgia saying that um, the robot heyday had passed uh, by the 90s or by the end of the 90s seems to me overblown. Let's get back to Azoken here. I do very (laughs) much uh, like, first of all, I feel uh, completely validated that the first four episodes were sort of a capstone and we're into a new chapter and it very much starts with sort of a new plot line where we've got um, Asakusa running around feeling like she's under threat. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very dramatic oh, for Azoken. Exactly. And then they're playing, you know, and then we get introduced to the robot and then this is the next, this is the project. We, we understand this is the, the next theme. And I, you know, it was, I very much like the way they presented it. I very much like the idea of the synthesis with the other, um, I'm calling it an after-school group, but that's not right. That's not the right thing to call it. Club. It's a, a club. different club. It's yeah, a robot think, club. I just feel like we don't really have... We do, but I don't feel like our clubs in the U.S. or our after-school activities are really parallel to what's going on in Japan. Maybe you feel differently. I was pictured, and it was the de- it was the debate club, and under our photo, it said it was the chess club. Because all the people who did our yearbook were looking at was a bunch of nerds standing there. <laughs> and they couldn't differentiate between debate and chess. <laughs> no one in the room that shows that photo, Don, of you and me. And I only went to debate club once. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was that. I honestly do not remember participating in much debate. I'll tell you that. I, I think we did do it. Are you saying that it was a times. sexy time? Did I miss out on something? Uh, if you missed it, I also definitely <laughs> missed it. This one time in band camp? <laughs> yeah, not not so much. I, But I'm, I'm curious as to whether you think there is more structure or mm. interest or is the, are these clubs different from their American counterparts or is there a lot of similarity there? One thing that I think makes them very unique is that there is usually something called the cultural festival or the bunkasai. Um, And that is a school by school event that pools that that each club has to do something to raise funds for, or to, um, to demonstrate their viability. So like uh, they spend a lot of their time fundraising for their activities but their activities aren't usually as big as the fundraising activity that ends up getting them the funds to do their activity. So say that it's the, um, aside from major sports, say that it's the um, crocheting club. Well, all the members of the crocheting club will run a cat cafe and they'll actually make a cat cafe and they'll have, it's almost like like a church sale or something where people come in and they make brownies or something, right? Except it's done up in a really lavish way. Uh, I attended one of these at my friend's school where he taught. And um, it was exactly like it looks in the anime. They had like a cat cafe. The girls were wearing the cat ears. And uh, they had made their own menus. 
They made their own uh, recipes. Uh, they cooked everything. They served everything. Everybody had a role. And um, they also talked a little bit about their club. They had done crocheting to like put like decorations up and stuff like that. So I don't think there's an equivalent exactly in America, as far as my schooling went anyway. It's, it's pretty important that you at least get into a club because I, in some places it's required that you participate in something. And some of the popular ones fill up first. So getting to the ones that are popular is important if you if you don't want to get stuck in something that you're not fond of. I think a lot of kids do make that sort of as important to them as their actual curriculum, their regular school curriculum. So to answer your question, I don't know exactly, but it's not like they're just checking a box to get into college. I Yeah, I, I found it. I mean, I can think of certain experiences I had, but mostly in college where people's extracurriculars just became more important than their actual education. Like there was a friend of mine who was in my acapella group who he was there for education and got an education degree, but (laughs) we sang, you know, all the time. And he actually left school and then went and like got a degree in music and then like was in recording studios in LA um, because like it was just, it was, he really wanted to do stuff like that. The, The music stuff had just, Taken over him. Taken him over. Anyway, the Robot Club is super passionate about robots. Uh, they have this robot that's been passed down, they claim, since 1800. Ah, <laughs> uh, doubt. Uh, and there's one part that, there's one gag that I really liked where, is it, I think it was Kanamori who just starts saying that it was, the only thing they changed about the model of the robot over the years was the head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So someone built the body and they've just been changing the head out over the years. Uh, It's called Talos, if you care about that. I I feel like that has a... Like that links into something else, but I don't know what off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, And the whole like conflict of this episode is sort of a, a... Would you say this is true? It's sort of a fight between the dreams we have based on our fantasies, like of anime and giant robots versus the reality of how those things would work in the real world. And each of these people, especially the most vocal opponent of the Azoken, the he he in particular is is all about it has this contradiction within him of I want to have a realistic robot, but I also want it to have a person inside and I want it to be able to fly and shoot rockets and homing missiles and all sorts of things. Right. But I, I loved that soliloquy. Honestly, I thought it was, it, it was the perfect, uh, cognitive dissonance. Yes. In that's understanding, a great word for it. <laughs> um, why you intrinsically love giant robots and why at the same time you recognize the wild impracticability of giant robots. The story is basically that, the Azoken has been hired by the Robot Club to make a short film, uh, anime film, of their giant robot looking cool, doing something, for screening at the uh, at a festival for the clubs, uh, so they can help so it can help fundraise for them. When we were talking about sort of that cognitive dissonance, uh, I really just wanted to point out that. There's this great part where the guy's saying, I want it to be realistic. And Mizusaki, not missing a beat, is like, oh, you mean like Boston Dynamics realistic? Where they're like, you know, like the the dog robots that you can kick over and they keep moving or they move boxes. And then he says, no, no, not like that. Like realistic. And then Asakusa's vision is just a steam shovel. (laughs) And then he's like, no, no, realistic. And then he lays out his whole dream and and he says that he he he's when he's on the toilet, he dreams about piloting, uh, sitting in the cockpit of a giant robot. And he wants to be in one himself. And that that launches uh, Mizusaki and Asakusa into uh, recalling their own dreams, much to Kanamori's chagrin, because she 
this is I added this to the list, but this is one of the things she hates is when people uh, appeal to one another with emotions yeah. <laughs> or resolve resolve a crisis with emotions. So now we've got like a, a we've got this whole list of things of the type of people Kanamori hates. And I think it's about four or five long now. So I'm curious how many we'll have by the end of the show. But um, they come in with their own appeals and. Mizusaki's is awesome. She's remember she's remembering how every night she cries herself to sleep, wishing she could do the Hadouken from Street Fighter. Dawn, is there any kind of like um sort of like impossible fantasy thing that you kind of wished you could do? I remember in particular having to sit through interminable school presentations in the um auditorium and fantasizing about uh murdering the whole school (laughs) being able to leap onto stage from like far away and like doing battle with some sort of weird ninja that showed up or something i i just like to entertain (laughs) myself i remember you know because you're there you're bored there's the stage what else are you gonna do when i used to watch ranma one half i dreamed of having an umbrella that was very heavy that i could wield like a like a combat um, like a combat stick and also spin like he spun it and i wished i could jump like an anime character could jump like really high with minimal effort and i got a steel rod i asked my dad to get me a steel or like a copper rod from home depot and i stuck like a chinese umbrella in it and i taped them together i got like a chinese umbrella at Epcot Center. Ryoga uses a super heavy-weighted Chinese umbrella, if you don't know the series. Uh, It's probably made of steel. I I would also point out that copper is one of the heaviest, like, metals you can I was hoping it would make me strong. Yeah, I mean, didn't make me any weaker. What it did was it made me weaker because (laughs) I couldn't carry it, and I gave up. But then I decided I could do the jump. If anything else, I could do the jump. And I was at college, and I was I was slightly inebriated, and there was a wall, and it I'm was about knee high level. Setting this stage, there was a wall about knee high level, and I attempted to jump like they do in anime, where like you you almost don't lift your legs like a cat, where like you just literally just like like apparate into the air. <laughs> And land on the thing you're trying to land on. And I did that, but I missed it by about four inches. <laughs> and my foot got caught, and I went down hard, and I tumbled over the wall. And I, I didn't break anything, but I skinned all of the like skin off of one of my knees. And, uh, and I just hobbled back. <laughs> A broken animal. <laughs> Is that when you realized you would never be able to fly? Really? Really, I used to have dreams about it, but it was never flying. It was always just jumping really high with sort of a gliding ability. I was going to say, you're going to need maybe some I was a other flying ability. Squirrel just in just another jumping life. really high is a major problem because how are you going to land? Right. Well, I could in the dream, but not in real life. Anyway, I totally sympathize with this sort of feeling. And let's talk a little bit about their uh, their monster and sort of where they go for inspiration. They go on a location scout, that's what it's called, where when you're starting up a production, you go somewhere to get inspired, take pictures, and sort of come up with visual bases for the art and settings that you're going to create. And it also helps you sort of put the, the fantasy creatures into a real environment and figure that out. Um, I, I collect Disney art books, so I always see their like um, inspirational photos and hear them talk about how they uh, went to Norway or somewhere to uh, study the different architecture and the way the trees look and the way snow looks and the, and the colors and the palettes that they use um, for Frozen or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Here, they go into a sewer. <laughs> I've never been in a sewer. Have you been in a sewer? No, I have not physically been entirely in a sewer, but it's also not a place people are generally... First of all, it's a little different than a sewer, per se. It's a bunch of um, shafts 
yeah. intended to access shafts for various elements, including sewer, but also, but not primarily or solely sewer. And I think that's an important distinction. How is it important? <laughs> well, um, first of all, sewers are a lot more cramped than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would have you believe. Uh, uh, well, that that might be true, but Ghostbusters also had me believe that the that the the New York sewer system is like the widest game in town. Yeah, I'm 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 very skeptical that uh, you're fine and that you're going to find sewers that are so accommodating. Generally, you know, you generally go down there and it's not you know here they were walking on. And that plays into the plot, some soft wood. But there's wood here. The intention is you're not supposed to be walking through a river of sewage. Um, that's true. And I think that that's, that is a big and important difference in terms of what they're looking at. Um, well, they head into a creepy underground Yes, area. and I do think it's the, you know, sort of the world setting that that the Azokan has is is very fun because it's very, it's prone to these fantastical spaces that are exaggerated visions of of urban areas and it's wonderful the way that they weave it into the story i actually didn't think this one was very exaggerated but um the location of it and the the way they get in and stuff i loved kanamori breaking down the door by the way yeah she's like the door has one job to open yeah to be honest it reminded me of um something out of akira when they go down um, oh good it looks very much like the sort of angle and the daylight and the, it's the same sort of weird shaft view um it definitely reminded me of akira um i liked that asakusa was totally a, a scaredy cat uh she didn't want to go down there she was they thought she was afraid of the dark and uh she she has this like she has this knapsack full of full of gadgets and gizmos and things and in this case, she had these light-up shoes, like a like a like a young child would wear. And of course, they rib her on that. But she's very prepared. And when things go bad later, and they fall through that wooden floor that you're talking about, the one that she was suspicious of all along, and they land on some leaves, and there's no way out. Uh, she MacGyver's this thing together. I don't know if you, our listeners know who MacGyver is, but it was a series that we grew up with. Uh, this this guy it was is a product to, of he, its time he gets he gets himself into sticky situations <laughs> and he has to he has to figure out how to get out of them using everyday household items and my god he is in so many bad situations and there are so many useful items around him at all times i think he might be a superpower but anyway he'll take like a stick of gum uh, he'll use the I, I wrapping love, paper. I love how you keep he'll, going with this. Yes, MacGyver could do anything, but also if you go back and watch it, it's atrocious. And he is the embodiment of 80s fashion. Like, it's horrible. Um, it's not a show I that... his hair. The, his hair his was hair pretty was, cool. It was like like a mullet on steroids, if I recall. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. MacGyver tried to come back a couple times, but it really is a product of its time. But here... Asakusa pulls a MacGyver. She has all of these little things in her bag to help her get out. And she uses her sock and some twine. Or a rope, I think it was. Mm-hmm. She uses her sock and a rope and something heavy. And she sort of makes this this makeshift, like, it's just sort of a grappling hook. And she's able to get out of there. But she's just a fun character. That's all I want to say about that. Yeah, she absolutely is. I like the line that uh, Kanamori says, you're just playing. And Asakusa's response is really good. It's, yeah, that's what we do. We go into a situation and we sort of play a little bit and find out, like, how our monster is going to exist in this space, like, or how our battle is going to unfold. And you can see Mizusaki is looking at the, like, beam above them, the stone beam or the pillar. And she's like, well, this part's going to probably collapse and... You know, there's lots of inspiration. They find a place where they think the monster might come out of. And can you tell us a little bit about the monster that they come up with? The Oh, so I actually was fascinated by this because they built a sort of crab-like creature. Um, but they modeled its claw off of the pistol shrimp. Yeah. Which is a fascinating real-life character, uh, real-life creature that... Um, 
essentially is able to produce a shockwave with its claw, um, which can pack quite a punch, um, knock creatures out and um, blow holes and things. It's the it's a very impressive creature, and they've just scaled it up for the purposes of this sort of crab. And I'm I am fairly confident it would not work at that scale, but uh, I'm going I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt because it's a great inspiration. I also like the fact that um, they were initially like the robot is only three meters tall, which is basically the size of a giraffe. And that's when like they were sort of like cutting the legs out from under the robot guys, <laughs> cutting their dreams into little into little pieces. Here they were like, well, this is the this is the kind of creature that it could fight. It'll and she comes with this whole weird backstory for the for the crab turtle. The crab turtle has this weird backstory. It's um, it's agrarian originally, and I guess at some point they they become rogue elements or they're forgotten. I don't know, but you mean like they're cattle or livestock? Yeah, they're they're cattle. I think is more it's, the translation was livestock, but livestock for me seems like they're gonna eat it. And they do show people eating crabs in sort of the like storyboard animatic that they play when they're dreaming up how it's all going to look. When Asakusa's charged with making the storyboards for it. Yeah, it's a cool little creature. And the the robot sort of comes to life as they're imagining the the monster. And they imagine the robot with like a chainsaw arm and... uh, and it's going to like stick the chainsaw into the ground and like run around. And I like the fact that they're always constantly thinking about how they're going to animate these things. So Mizusaki, as soon as she hears chainsaw, she's like, oh, that's such it's, a pain to animate. Yeah, I can't do all the teeth. But then Asaka says like, oh, it'll be spinning most of the time. It'd be really easy. Yeah. Will it be? <laughs> um, there's a word. There's a key word here that sort of like pulls them more towards uh, embracing the fantasy of a robot than just the reality. And that word is Roman. And in Japanese, that word is used a lot to refer to sort of like a boyish romanticism, um, not related to two people in love or a relationship, but sort of like uh, the romance of adventure. So is this... I'm confused because that's when you said Roman, I was very much at a loss... It's it's a Japanese word, roman. Uh, it's used in all the boys' manga. It's often referred to okay. when talking about sort of adventure and like our sort of childish, boyish yearning respects this idea of of embracing things that are cool for the sake of being cool. That's a very interesting word. Kind of like machismo, but not necessarily. It still translates as romanticism, but I think that's a word we don't use a lot in that sense anymore. Mm. Now the shoe's on the other foot, and they come back with all these great ideas. And I think they start off and they're like, we're going to put the hatch in the front to maintain this sense of boyish romanticism. But it's then the robot club's turn to start adding their own ideas. And, and they pretty much are the ones who say, well, I think it's more accurate to put it in the back like you had originally suggested. And they start making compromises and stuff. And then they start just piling different weapons onto this thing. So it just looks super busy. And you're already seeing the headaches this is going to cause. And it ends on this weird cliffhanger where they're sort of like, oh no, it's a blue collar robot because we gave it like a pile driver and we gave it a like a drill and we gave it a chainsaw. So it's like, now it's like a robot that goes to work. It's no longer like, sort of like a, a weapon specifically for being a weapon or being cool. And that's sort of something they have to resolve. Except they don't. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It might happen off screen. We don't know. Yeah. Before we move on to episode six, is there anything more you want to say about episode five? I know they sort of dovetail together nicely, but... They do dovetail together nicely. I I just thought it was a... I was wondering where they were going to go, and I like the direction that, that the plot takes at this particular point. I think it was great. Were there any favorite scenes you had? Um, 
that I didn't mention or no I, th- like I thought that. it was a lot of fun the way they were playing around with the giant robot and imagining different elements because I mean that's the sort of boyish dream that you talked about with giant robots like um it wouldn't it be cool yeah. if you know they get to brainstorm like that and then you get to see it here as they envision it um so that was I I will say I also very much liked the robot club scheming against the Azokan and then Kanamori walking in and seeing it all and being like, you guys are so screwed. Like, there's just, they don't have a snowball's chance in hell against Kanamori. She already had her camera out and was taking pictures of the evidence. Yep. So good. Um, I was wondering, did you ever see Pacific Rim? I was going to bring that up. If we're going to talk about the age of giant robots, how could we not talk about Pacific Rim? Like, it was it was popular enough to get a sequel, which I never saw because it did not look as good. It was, I I did not watch it, but my understanding is that it was terrible. <laughs> I liked the first one. Though. I love the first, well, love is too strong. I thought the first one scratched <laughs> every itch you would have related to giant robots. I mean, it's basically like, it's like a Godzilla flick. Like you've got big robots fighting big monsters um slugging it out over cities and there uh, was a giant enemy crab that was uh, in all the flashbacks when it was right. going after the girl you're right um i also wanted to follow up talos is um mm-hmm. there was a giant automaton made of bronze to protect europa in crete from pirates and invaders oh so it's like one of the original robots if you will it's one of those robots that's the off-brand Transformers and none of their joints move. <laughs> Pacific Rim, I just wanted to say that um, I loved this one part where they have to use the giant sword and you look at the cockpit and there's just this button with a giant picture of a sword on it that's <laughs> flashing <laughs> and they just slap it. Yep bam it's like mcdonald's like you know how mcdonald's went through that like uh transformation where they used to have to like punch in numbers and stuff and now it's just a picture of a big hamburger yeah it's true they mcdonaldized like the cockpit of the giant robot i thought that was great so much fun the scale of those things was amazing yeah i i that was where you know that was essentially animated for lack of a better word it was yeah it was very very Hey there, I'm Marn, and I've got a new podcast right here on the Orange Groves Network. Every other Thursday on Dead Letter Society, I'm going to invite a friend into my library of terror to discuss a piece of horror fiction. We'll tackle topics like, why does Stephen King like evil clowns so much? Why is Ikea so inherently scary? And why don't young adult publishers like the horror genre? You can even read along with us week to week and weigh in with your own opinions on the Orange Groves Discord. So check out Dead Letter Society, a horror book club podcast, on the Orange Groves Network website or your podcast provider of choice. Hey Jory, have you ever watched the anime called One Piece? Yeah, Joe. I watch for a podcast that we do. What? You know, we are watching One Piece. I started watching it so you could rewatch it, and then we talk about it sometimes. I have have no idea what you're talking about. Well, we don't do it super frequently. Once a month at best. Did you forget? We analyze the story and discuss the show's themes, characters, compare it to other media, and how it provides an allegory for real-life politics and events. I, I must have forgotten what... Where can I listen to remind myself? You can listen at the Orange Groves Podcast Network or search for We Are Watching One Piece in your favorite podcast app. What's a podcast? episode six Don. don't mind if i do so there now we're finding the practical concerns related to um how are they going to actually deliver this project that's going to be much bigger yeah um and they it's a much bigger project they have triple the time but they also have triple the work and they're a little wiser now they understand that they're you know that they there's certain shortcuts that they're going to have to take but they also um realize you know 
they want things that they didn't have before, like a soundtrack. And they, this is where we start getting involved. They talk about the art. They're essentially bringing in other resources to help, like the art club. Right, they wanted to use them previously, but they were on another project. And now the art club wants in on what they're doing because they've proven to be the hot ticket. During that whole like part where they're just calling out the things that they want to fix, they're like, a story would be nice. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't that be uh, peachy? Voice acting. Now, in this particular um, episode, I... I, I do have a favorite scene here, and it was related to the sound effects um, when they were, and I'm jumping ahead here, of course. Was it the treadmill? It was absolutely the treadmill when yeah. they got the walking and the feet going through all the different kinds of terrain, and it's the same just tread, 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 tread sound. And the, I was watching it, and I was cracking up, and my kids were watching it, and they just they were like, well, I don't understand why this is funny. Like, well, how are you? Why is this? You they know, didn't pick up on it. I mean, they, they figured something was wrong, but they didn't understand that this was exactly what Kanamori was trying to explain and or you know, how they were trying to explain to the sound person. Like, this is this is what we have to work with without your skills. This is, you know, this is what this is the travesty that you will see move to fruition without your help. So let's name the sound person because the sound person does give her name. It's Domeki. Domeki is the only member of the special effects club, which takes up four rooms and Kanamori gets permission to approach her and sort of like threaten her with eviction. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that was exactly how it went. She I think she was. She has the paper. For some she, yeah, she does. Yeah. But like she obvi- you you just know the way Kanamori works like she has. She has designed this. She has figured out yes, how to use so. it as leverage to go and be like, like they said, well, we need to reclaim the space. And she's like, let me help you with that. Let me take the piece. I'll deliver it. Let me do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great, that's a whole great scene because uh, <laughs> Domeki actually turns around once the offer's made and is like, oh, hey, can I borrow some money? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And... The, the sound effects that that um, Asakusa shows her right after the treadmill scene in the, the the free sound effects that she's using. And every editor knows the pain of sound effects. Like we had a library that I went that I worked with in my first job uh, in production. And it was just full of all those like sparoing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining, yeah, it's like all the the sound effects that you get on like a a budget radio show when they're like, and now we've got the contest, cheering in the background, all that, you know, all that other stuff. And that's a very good description of what Asakusa represents when she shows this cool ass animatic of a robot like fighting a crab and it's filled with all these sproingy, awful sound effects. Also... Another pain that people who do production know is having to make your own sound effects with your mouth. <laughs> like, how many times did I make, like, kissy sound effects when I needed a kiss sound? I have no idea how many. Me and my hand? We that wasn't back. <laughs> that wasn't a rhetorical question? Uh, anyway, the point is, she literally vomits when she sees and hears all this. Domeki goes off to the side and tosses her cookies. Uh, it's a great scene, and um, and and what did you think of Asakusa approaching? Like Asakusa is put in charge of explaining her vision to the art club. Do you think she did a good job? No, I and th- well, in the sense of we expected her to do a bad job, right? Like every part of her character is, and she's very vocal about the fact that she has no desire to tell other people what to do but she manages to find common ground with her with the the members and that of course makes all the difference and of course that's how real life works as well like you know you can be uncomfortable and awkward in situations but if you have if you're able to find some areas where you can sympathize and and you're simpatico with someone then you're able to to move forward usually yeah um I don't think she did a very good job, but I also think that this was sort of, this was a learning moment for her. Yes. And Kanamori is right. 
when you have the vision, when you're the one throwing your vision out there, you're the one in charge and you're the one who's going to go down if something goes wrong. And she, for the first time, puts Asakusa, puts the director's hat on Asakusa. So we know Kanamori's sort of easing into the position of a producer. And we know that Mizusaki is an animator and she's also put in charge of choreography because Asakusa can't figure out how to make, like, how to draw those cool battles. Like, she's not got that vision that she can put on paper. She's only got it in her head. So Mizusaki's doing animation and choreography. But Asakusa looks like she's going to be the director now. And that's a that's sort of a change. And it means that she's going to have to step up. Because Kanamori says, if the product is trash, that's on you. Wise words. Do you remember this part? Yes. Do you remember the part where she goes on like a bad trip and she starts self-doubting herself? She starts doubting herself and she starts spiraling out. And she's like, oh my God, giant robots are just a bundle of lies. They're... Right. And she's like trying to come up with, I've got a whole new vision. And she comes back and like something else. And then Kanamori... so lame. Yeah. (laughs) Kanamori almost like bashes her upside the head to like knock some sense into her like it's just like this is no we're not doing that like what how how do you think that's possibly going to fly um and it's mostly just sort of hitting the reset button on kind of more on um asakusa's back and like just getting her you know dialed back in she still has to reconcile these feelings she has about the robot designs but she does it by changing the interior so it doesn't affect the outside of the robot. So you can tell that Asakusa does need there to be internal logic to these things. But as long as she can like keep it from destroying like the vision that she's got all others already on board for, she should be okay. Um, can't, she can't be... She has to start incorporating the needs of the other parties and the desires of the other parties to make the vision coherent and move forward. Because left to her own devices, you know, she zigs and she zags. She's going one direction one time. And then, you know, the vision, as you pointed out, was completely different and terrible and would simply not work. And more to the point, nobody else has bought into that vision. Yeah. This episode is also interesting because it's the first time that we see Kanamori spending a lot of money on the club. So she she buys a computer and she also takes them out for food, although she ends up not paying. <laughs> we don't know if she actually pays later. Oh, that's right. She says she's going to pay. She's go- it's, it's a very interesting um, dinner scene because... Clearly, she's been, like, working really hard, leading them up into this sort of celebratory dinner. And it seems like Misusaki and Asakusa have just been daydreaming while Kanamori's actually been putting in a bunch of hard work. Uh, And then they get to the meal and, you know, Kanamori and Asakusa are still sort of off on flights of fancy. And No, Misusaki and Asakusa. uh, Misusaki and Asakusa are off on flights of fancy and Kanamori just passes out. Uh, and then snaps up, eats the food, and forces them to pay for their own meals again. There's a, there's a very sweet moment where Mizusaki notices that Kanamori got a haircut. And she just says, uh-huh, I did. And that's the whole that's the whole bit. It's just this little moment that I thought added to the characters somehow that they're... I, I, what I, I do like the fact that these characters feel very real. Um, and I... I am intrigued by the idea that we see them through the lens of the Azokan. But they have, you know, I don't know what they're studying at school. I I have very little (laughs) view of what their home life is. You know, we know the most about uh, Misusaki, I guess. We know that uh, she's a model and that, you know, she's got all this pressure from her parents. And we saw at least the very beginning of um, Asakusa's family life. But otherwise, everything is through the lens of the Azoka, and, and they, you know, these characters seem real. They seem three-dimensional. And I think that's one of the things the series does really well, in spite of the fact that we're only seeing it through this one, one lens. 
my daughter, um, she doesn't like math. It's very, very well known on these here internets. Um, because whenever I'm making a video, you can hear her in the background saying, I hate math. <laughs> <laughs> but she's very excited about art and the kind of focus she can show when she's doing art. And she draws pictures every day for hours. And I, I buy boxes of staples paper and she draws those pictures and she does at least 10 to 15 a day well after watching this show i told her i said maya you have to draw 500 of these a day and if you're off by 0. 0.2 0. 0.02 millimeters you go to hell <laughs> is that what you said to your daughter that's what i said so you know, this show's been very educational for both of us. I really. imagine it has. All right. That is all for this week. Um, I know that this was a shorter one, but there's some more exciting stuff coming up. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to us on our Twitter. It's Okashina Podcast. O-K-A-S-H-I-N-A Podcast. And you can get all of our other information there including how to, like, get to our Patreon and uh, how to buy us a coffee, other than just, you know, ordering one online and having it delivered. Oh, 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 Kashina podcast. Oh my gosh, is that the work (laughs) in progress of your acapella version that you're doing? Absolutely. And you, I was singing it to the tune of, you know, that ad, I don't even know if you have that advertising chain in, in New Jersey. No, probably not, because I didn't recognize it. I thought you were doing like the not a Backstreet Boys, but like a um, what was that band we grew up with? Uh, the the boy Insane. band. No, no, dude, what? The boy band we grew up with with Mark Wahlberg and or not Mark Wahlberg, or the other one. Backstreet Boys. Donnie Wal, Wal- Donnie Wahlberg. Uh, the Backstreet right Boys. Stuff. Jeez. Oh, 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 oh. I shouldn't sing anymore. <laughs> the new kids on the block. Three, three two, one. Okashi Koyo. You gave me no one. <laughs>